From Eyewitness News, this is Newsmakers. Welcome to Newsmakers, I'm Tim White. This week, we sat down with the new Colonel of the Rhode Island State Police, James Manning. He's just the 14th superintendent in the 95-year history of the storied law enforcement agency. We sat down with Colonel Manny inside State Police Headquarters in Situate. Colonel, first, congratulations on becoming the 14th superintendent of the of this storied law enforcement agency. Yes. Um, and I was wondering as I was putting these questions together if that was ever a goal of yours to become the head of the Rhode Island State Police. It's the goal of every young trooper. Um, this is a revered organization. Traditions are, are uh, really valued here. We're 95, 94 years old as of April 2nd. But every young trooper that has ever dreamed, every young man and woman uh, that's ever dreamed of being a state trooper wants to be the superintendent. So it's an honor to be considered for the position and then ultimately chosen. When the governor <clears throat> asked you uh, to, to become the colonel, did anything give you pause about the job? No. I, I, I jumped at the chance to, to become the superintendent. Of course, there were f family issues I had to consider. Um, that I was, you know, putting a, a pension on hold, freezing it, and then coming back to an organization and working, you know, and giving up a pay at another place. So, you know, I have a daughter in college, and that was something I had to consider. Not only just money, though. Uh, I don't need to tell you, you're, as colonel, your phone rings at 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, the job is not 9 to 5. It's very demanding. It, was that something that you were worried about in terms of how it was going to affect your home life? It wasn't. Uh, matter of fact, I was on the phone till midnight last night. There was a SWAT call in Pawtucket. Yeah. Um, it wasn't because my entire adult life was spent on call in one way or another. I was on a SWAT team for 15 years. I was on call uh, as the team commander and then as a SWAT member for 15 years. I was a district commander here on call in charge of the uniform division for several years. I was in the Secret Service on call all the time. So that really was, I, I've been used to it in my 35-year adult life uh, in, in my profession, including the town manager job in Narragansett. I've always been on call, and I actually like that. It sounds like your family's probably used to it by now. Oh, my wife's never. used to it, right. <laughs> She's used to the phone ringing and the, and the notes in the middle of the night on what I need to get done the next day. So what do you think the people of Rhode Island will notice as the biggest change you're going to make with the Rhode Island State Police? Well, it's the changes, one of the, probably the biggest change they will see right off the bat is the outreach program is that we launched yesterday is coming back full force. What is that? So I was, uh, in my position before I retired, I was the community outreach coordinator for the state police um, as a major. I was in charge of legislation, accreditation, and outreach. It was an area I was not familiar with. Um, and, but one that I embraced, and Colonel O'Donnell entrusted to me. It was, it, was a, it was a very important project for the state police. I firmly believe that a modern law enforcement agency must reflect the community it serves. And we put a tremendous amount of effort into getting troopers into the, into the inner cities all across the state so they can see what the state police is all about. We've, we, yesterday, we launched the community outreach program again yesterday and, and hopefully take it to the next level. When the Rhode Island State Police enter communities, and, and that's one of the challenges this agen agency has. You do traffic stops. Um, those traffic stops are tracked by law in the state based on race. 
So you're, uh, and there's, I think it's safe to say, there's distrust from the minority community upon law enforcement. One of the disadvantages I think the agency has is you're not embedded in a certain community. Providence cops are in Providence. Pawtucket police officers are in Pawtucket. They forge these relationships with that community, or at least they try to. When the Rhode Island State Police enter uh, a community, say it's in the summertime in Providence, it's usually because there might be a problem and there needs to be more of a police presence. How do you, uh, how do you forge those relationships with that community when you don't have that sort of constant presence in those cities and towns? So that's a good question because there's, there's general distrust of law enforcement nationwide. And, and that is something we have to overcome uh, at every level in our state, state police all the way down to the municipal levels. So to answer your question directly, we need to connect to the community. We need to have outreach with community leaders and build those relationships, build that trust, so that when we are in the city, they know who we are and, and, and reasons we're there. But I would agree with you that we definitely need, because the state police does not have one set of areas that we just uh, exclusively patrol, we patrol the entire state, that we need to build those relationships individually. All Ch cities and towns. Let's talk about changes that are, have happened internally. One of the things I'm always interested when a new colonel comes in is uh, changes to the command staff. They, these are the people that you work with yes. very closely and have a profound impact on this agency. What changes have you made and why? So there were th uh, 13 members on the command staff, which includes me. So there were 12 senior commanders, captains, majors, and lieutenant colonels. And then I'm the colonel. So anytime you come into an organization, you need to see what resources are available to you and to and to determine are the people in these positions the best fit for your vision of, of an agency. There were, I have some tremendous com commanders, all guys I've worked with and men and women that I've worked with. So I came up with my priorities and the priorities of the state police and made some adjustments. One was in the area of uh, public safety. So we, we've dedicated not just one but two of these commanders to the the Division of Public Safety. So people understand there's the state police and you're the colonel of that, but you're also the director of public safety, which is an umbrella to sheriffs, Capitol Police, you know, a whole- 911, um, the Municipal Academy, uh, Justice uh, Grant Program. So the six agencies that, um, along with the state police, fall under the Department of Public Safety. There's, uh, there are approximately 700 employees in that Department of Public Safety. and so we need to balance on, uh, you know, I needed to have the resources to manage those other agencies as well as the state police. When you made some changes, Colonel, do you think you hurt some feelings? I don't know if I hurt some feelings. I think any, you know, anytime you change, uh, there's, there's probably a little bit of misgiving is, it, you know, change sometimes affects people in different ways. When I was on the command staff, I was changed a couple of times. So I think it keeps people on their toes. I think it motivates them. But there's one standard. What is the best thing for the agency, the Department of Public Safety? And once you, that's explained to everyone, they understand it. What do you see as the single biggest challenge facing the Rhode Island State Police right now? Well, there's many challenges. So um, uh, adequate manpower to provide the services to um, the people of this beautiful state. And what should manpower be? Colonel Sumpico told me in 2017, in five years she wants to see this agency at 300 troopers. That would be the highest I think it's ever been. I could be wrong about that. That's right. Do, do you like that number? I don't know the number. 
So that's why it's early on in my administration and I'm doing an assessment to see what the best number is to adequately provide these services in the best way to the entire state. So there will be an allocation of resources, an assessment with studying where the best allocation is, supervisory level, trooper level. We, with this new class coming on, there are 37 people in the uh, in State Police Academy right now, the most diverse academy we've ever run. And th once that class comes on and we're fully operational, I think I'd have a better answer for you in that regard. But I can't put a number right now. The context of that question to Colonel Asumpico was I was doing a report on the closing of the Portsmouth Barracks, or it had been closed, and a lot of people didn't realize that, that it closed in 2012. Right. She wanted to reopen it hasn't been reopened, what's going to happen with the Portsmouth Barracks? Well, right now, the short-term plan is to keep it closed because we do not have the resources to commit to having a fully staffed barracks. But we do have patrols dispatched out of Wickford that are exclusive to the Portsmouth area, and I will continue with those. Do you want to reopen the barracks? I can't give you an answer on that yet. I, I, once again, once I do this assessment to see is, is there a need to open that, I worked out of that barracks. It's a beautiful area. It's a beautiful spot to work. It was, it was a, a very, um, you know, we covered the bridges there, we covered the East Bay there. So once I do this assessment to see if there's a need to open that barracks, and then we'll make a decision on it. You, um, you've been on the job in 1990, right? You were sworn in. Sworn in June 17, 1990, retired June 17, 2015. So do you find it's harder to recruit and retain troopers now than it was when you started? Once again, it's a national issue. When my class tried out, we had 3,500 applicants. Wow. When the last class tried out, there were about 18, about half. Why? Well, I think it's a national uh, issue. I don't, I don't think uh, law enforcement is as attractive as it once used to be. Um, it's a cultural thing. It's, uh, there's been some perception issues over the past you know, 10, 15 years. So it's a struggle for all law enforcement agencies to attract good qualified candidates. But, and this might not account for 3,500 to 1,800, but the state made some changes, um, got rid of longevity, made uh, changes to the, the pension system. Are those impacting your ability to hire and retain? I don't believe it is. Uh, that surprises me. Maybe in retention, if a person has time on and they're comparing this agency to another agency and they're from another locality, yeah, maybe that could have an impact. But I don't think attracting, and I'll tell you why. You, when you talk to these young men and women that come on to the state police, including me, we didn't know what we made. We didn't, we didn't know the pension plan. We didn't know the benefit package. We wanted to be state troopers. We wanted to be police officers. So that, the compensation package meant nothing to all of us when we came on. To get in the door. It didn't That's mean right. Anything. You just wanted to be in law enforcement because you loved the occupation. But once again, it's an, if it was just in Rhode Island, maybe you could make that correlation. It's not. It's a national trend. I want to ask you about the legalization, a potential legalization of recreational marijuana. Look, this, this state is inching closer, closer to it. Uh, it's an, unclear if it'll get through the General Assembly this session, but every year the momentum increases, and the governor has uh, expressed that she would uh, probably sign a bill legalizing recreational marijuana. Do you support or oppose legalized pot? 
So what I would say to you is I'm not going to politicize this. So the policies and the laws and the ordinances are set, and then we enforce the law. That's really what it comes down to. But I will tell you this. Massachusetts has already legalized it. Connecticut might legalize it. There's a good chance it would be. We're already dealing with this issue. Rhode Island's stuck in the middle of these two much bigger states. We're already dealing with the aftermath of this, of some of our residents crossing the line to purchase uh, legalized marijuana. I've talked to the governor about this personally. Um, she's told me her priorities, that, that if this does get legalized, we would then have the resources to control the issue that's already here. Increased patrols, increased drug recognition experts, um, making sure that the highways uh, are safe for people to travel. So, in emergency, all emergency services. So we are already dealing with this issue. When you talked to the governor about it, did she ask you if you would publicly oppose the legislation? She did not. And as somebody who's been doing this for a long time, what are the challenges of, you know, uh, uh, legalized pot in any state in Rhode Island? Just uh, you know, in traffic stops, whatever it might be. What, what concerns you most about that? Well, obviously public safety. So public safety is the major concern. If you have an additional amount of uh, people driving motor vehicles that are, in, uh, that are intoxicated with marijuana, um, how does that impact safety? And can you safety? test for that? Well, a drug, there is no chemical test for that right now, from what I understand. They're, try, they're trying to develop one. So that's a challenge. Right now, it's, it's based off observations by a drug recognition expert, mm -hmm. which is a very labor-intensive job and, and very tough to certify people in. And there's a shortage of them in, in the state. So that is something that we would have to uh, send uh, all police officers in every community, including the state police, uh, to, to get additional resources in the drug recognition area. Just to continue with getting prickly policy issues out of the way, uh, as it stands right now, the Rhode Island State Police will not hold someone who was wanted uh, on a detainer by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. This is always a really emotional issue for a lot of people. Do you want to change that in any way? Would you like to see that uh, modified? Uh, would you like to see the State Police cooperate more with ICE, or do you want it to stay the same? Once again, I'm not going to politicize that. That's a very, but it affects your agency it does directly. It does affect us. So the answer is very simple to that. We follow law. We follow the state law. If someone breaks the law, we arrest them. And if there is an uh, immigration issue, we contact it. We contact ICE and we make them aware of it. And and we make them aware if we have someone that might have a detainer, and they can come and and uh, pick them up. But we will just follow the law as it's laid out to us. You, you notify ICE, but you, this agency, the uh, Department of Corrections, you don't hold someone. If, if they're adjudicated, they get a justice of the peace, whatever, you That's do right. the normal course of business. That's correct. correct. Okay. Yes. Um, we talked about the relationship uh, a little bit with the, the minority community, um, and you know, a lot of cities and towns are moving toward uh, body-worn cameras for their officers. Would you be open to that uh, for your troopers to wear body-worn cameras? Have you thought about it? I, I wore a, uh, uh, I, it was a different technology back then, but I wore a audio pack and I had a camera in my cruiser for five years uh, when I was on the road. This isn't a new topic that Wait, we- Where, here? On the state police, yes. We had it for about seven or eight years, I believe. Huh. Back in the 90s and early 2000 timeframe. So 
all cruisers had cameras, and like I said, the technology was different. We wore an audio pack on us, and the minute you turned your lights on in your cruiser, it started recording, and then you had to manually turn the audio pack on. So I and I'm, you wore that audio. Pack? Oh yes, we wore it. I don't uh, think I knew that. Oh yeah, we we wore that, and um, and and we we kept the uh, recordings for a period of time, and. If there was any allegation of any propriety or rudeness or anything, we went to that. So, so I'm familiar with it. I did it for years. I wore it. I'm open to anything that will increase the safety of the troopers and for public safety and so that the people of the state feel more comfortable with um, the product they're getting. That is an area we're going to look at. I will look at it. And, and um, a lot of police departments are going to body cameras, but that's... Once again, that's something we will be studying in the future if, if it would meet the needs of the state police. Be, because to be clear, my understanding is even your cruisers don't have cameras anymore. They do not. What, what, do you know what changed? I do. Um, it, was, it was, so technology was moving faster than you could afford it. It was really, uh, it was driven by budgeting. It was extremely expensive for the equipment. It was extremely expensive to, st to uh, store the data. And the technology passed. It, it, we weren't able to keep up with the new technological advances. So it did not serve the purposes of, of this agency um, in that time frame. Two years ago, I reported that the state police issued a no-bid contract that went to a company run by uh, Terrence Gaynor of Illinois, and that was someone who had been flagged by the Raimondo administration. Look, the decision... Uh, to, to even do the assessment, let alone the no-bid contract, um, led to criticism that the agency wasn't acting independent of politics. That may be fair or unfair, but that was the criticism. And it didn't sit well, I can tell you, and I think you know, with a lot of rank and file in this agency. Have you read the Gainer report, and what did you come away? I've read the report twice, word for word. And my uh, takeaway on it, there are, there are some issues in there that are valid that we need to... Uh, we need to address, one of which we spoke about, outreach, diversity, continue that progress. Mm -hmm. And the second was a promotion system. There was one in there that was very applicable. That has been a topic of discussion on the Rhode Island State Police since 1990 when I came on. Did you think it was unfair when you were a young trooper? Um, I knew there was a process in place, and it, I benefited from the promotion system, and at other times I haven't benefited from it. But that's the question, is, is it fear? Is, is the perception is that it's fear? And some of the answers in that report indicated that some of the troopers felt it wasn't. So that is... Right, troopers were surveyed for this, and not all took part of it. I right. think there was some reticence to take part in the survey, but that was one of the big takeaways you got out of that was uh, troopers were uneasy with the promotion system. That's correct. And, and day three that I came on this job last week, I met with the Renowned Troopers Association and brought that up as my number one topic that I would like to work with the association and in the administration here to come up with a policy that everyone feels comfortable with, a promotion policy. I'd like you to wear your uh, hat as the director of, of the Department of Public Safety now. Uh, we've been doing a fair amount of reporting on the high number of Rhode Island sheriffs that are out on injured on duty status, um, or IOD. As you know, they're able to collect their full pay tax-free. Um, there are some, as we found out, who have been on IOD in the Sheriff's Department for years. Uh, the administration says there's a loophole in the law that allows this. But as the head of the Department of Public Safety and someone who's worn a badge for a long time, um, what is it about the Sheriff's Department that puts them out of whack 
in this area. Far, far more Rhode Island sheriffs are out on IOD than, than uh, uh, state troopers. I think you had two or three at any given time. They were up in 23 out of 179. So I, I don't want to paint a broad brush on the sheriffs. There are about 175 sheriffs, and there are some extremely hardworking, dedicated law enforcement professionals. So I cannot paint a broad brush or make a correlation that the agency, the culture of that agency, is breeding this. There are some people that have taken advantage of the system. And the older system, if you look at these numbers, they go back in time. So I want to move forward. I want to, I want to look at this. Uh, I've, I've met with the, uh, the, uh, the high sheriff. Uh, Colonel David DeCesare, who's an extremely capable uh, law enforcement professional, and we've talked about this at length. How could we get as many of these sheriffs who are on IOD back, and how to prevent more from going um, on the rolls in injured on duty? I think we're down to about 18 or 19 right now. Right. Um, I want you. To, I want to look back for a second. Um, reading your bio. You, before becoming a state trooper, you were with the Secret Service. And, you know, the image people have of a Secret Service agent is I'm running alongside a motorcade and, and protecting the president. But the agency's role is, I, I don't think a lot of people realize, is much, much broader than that. What did you do for the Secret Service? So you're, you're correct. The Secret Service is an agency that's not really understood uh, as, as much as you would hope. So it was formed in 1865. And it was formed after the Civil War to combat counterfeiting, of which the United States currency was rampant with uh, counterfeit currency, which undermined the economy. Then in 1901, it was after the uh, McKinley uh, assassination, it was then it was given the responsibility of protection of the President of the United States. And so it has a dual role, investigations and protection. I went in the Secret Service in March of 1985 and um, you were immediately assigned to a small field office. I did Providence field office for two years. There were six agents here, and then a large field office, New York field office, for three and a half years. And I did investigations and filled in on details, uh, protection details, through that five and a half year period. So I've, I started under President Reagan. I actually spent a few minutes talking to him at his ranch in California, which was really a, a memorable event for me. Um, and then President Bush after that, uh, and, and at that time I had left in 1990. But I'd been on Vice President's detail many times, uh, Quayle, Bush when he was Vice President, dignitary protection, um, the Queen of England, King Hussein, details like that. So the protectees that I was on were just very nice people. Do you have a favorite? Well, President Reagan was, a, like I said, was, was one of my uh, highlights of my life being with him. But I, if I had to pick one favorite, uh, President Bush. How come? Uh, he was just such a genuine, nice guy. And that guy was the real deal. He mm -hmm. was the youngest fighter pilot shot down in World War II. Uh, his family, there was nothing phony about that guy. He was, he loved his wife, his wife loved him, and his family meant everything. And it just struck me as a, a man of his stature that could be so, um, so giving to to the people of the United States and just uh, just a, a solid guy. Back to your current job. Um, just in the time that I've been here uh, covering the Rhode Island State Police, I've covered Colonel Perry, Colonel Doherty, Colonel O'Donnell, Colonel Osempico, now Colonel Manny. That feels like in in a, a what are we at? Ninety five years for the Rhode Island State Police. That's right. 
Okay, so we've had that amount of turnover in uh, 13 years, I think I've, I've been here. Um, and you were present as a trooper and uh, you know, on up the ranks for all of those. Is that disruptive to this agency to have that much turnover? I wouldn't use the word turnover. See, I think we're using the standard that Colonel Stone was here for 30 years. Yeah. He, threw the, he threw the curve off. Well, and how long was Colonel Colhane here? Colonel Colhane was here for 11 years. Right. So, but if you look at other state police agencies, other superintendents usually are in the three to five, seven year mark, and then they start moving. It's a very demanding job. And, um, and especially if you've come from that agency after 25 or 30 years serving, and then you're in the superintendent of three, four, five years, it's a... It, it's not unusual if you look at surrounding states, Connecticut and Massachusetts. As far as disruptive, no, it's not disruptive. The, w there's always a succession plan with anyone who serves in these positions, including me, because this agency will survive, has to survive and will survive past me. This isn't my state police. It's the people of Rhode Island own, own this agency. So, um, it, but it has not been a disruptive change at all. How long will Colonel Manny be in this position? Well, that's, uh, that's yet to be determined. I mean, uh, I'd like to be here a long time. Uh, it's been a lifelong dream to get here, and I will stay as long as I'm welcome. Last question for you, Colonel. Um, your son, and please forgive me if I have the rank wrong, second lieutenant. That's correct. In the U.S. Army, James Manny. That's right. Uh, he missed, I was at your swearing in at the State House. He missed it because he was being... Uh, deployed to Korea. Um, tell us what his, what his role is in the Army, if you can, and what, what's sure. he doing in, in Korea? So he graduated West Point. I have two children, uh, my son James, who's going to be 23, my daughter Olivia, who's 20. She's at Boston University as a sophomore. I'm pr very proud of both of them. I've been happily married to Tracy for 26 years. So my son James graduated West Point in May of 2018, became commissioned as second lieutenant as an artillery officer in the 1st Armored Division which is based out of Fort Bliss, Texas. His unit got deployed to Korea, um, so he is currently assigned to Korea in an infantry unit as a, um, like a forward observer role in the artillery. So look, uh, you're the head of the state police. You've been in law enforcement for a long time, Secret Service, Rhode Island State Trooper, maxed out to 25 years. So I think it's safe to say you have pretty thick skin, but you're still a dad. Do you get a pit in your stomach when your child is, is deployed overseas? Well, my, my father served in Korea in the Korean War, and my son is there now, um, and it's an ongoing issue in Korea. We, we all watch the news. I don't get a pit in my stomach because I know he's well-trained and he's where he wants to be. He chose to be in the Army. He chose to be in a unit that... Um, is an active, deployable unit, and he really enjoys being there and serving. He wants to serve his country, and I applaud him for that. So as a parent, of course, you're always worrying about your children, but he's where he wants to be, and he's in good hands. Colonel, uh, again, thank you for your time, and congratulations. Thank you very much. If you missed any of our interview with Colonel James Manny of the Rhode Island State Police, you can catch it online, WPRI.com, or with the Newsmakers podcast through iTunes. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you next week on Newsmakers.